This morning, our text is going to be in an easy place to find, not necessarily easy to understand, but easy to find anyway. The very last book of the Bible, Revelation, that's singular, not plural, Revelation chapter 5. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will be glad to give you one. So Revelation chapter 5. Now, despite the importance of Revelation, I think many people miss the forest for the trees. People get so caught up in the details of who exactly the Antichrist is going to be or what the mark of the beast looks like. Is it the COVID vaccine? Is it something like that? That they, they lose sight of the big picture. And so Revelation is a book uh, reminding us that God's world is different from the world that we live in. God's world is one in which Christians are not the oddball in society. We're actually normal and right from God's perspective. It's unbelievers who are permanently earthbound, who are only seeing things from an earthly perspective and will perish in the end. So Christians should live according to the values and principles of God's kingdom, not the world. We're encouraged not to compromise, but to persevere following the example of the Lamb. And the promise of eternal life is given to those who do this. So I've said it's revelation, not revelations. The word revelation means an unveiling or an uncovering. And so John identifies who this is about. It's, it's not a book about a bunch of things necessarily being revealed, but one thing, and that's Jesus. The opening verse of Revelation, John says this, it's Jesus Christ who is the one being revealed as well as the one who is revealing. So God has, his, has a message to his servants about Christ and the things that will happen Uh, that he will reveal through Christ. So in chapters 1 through 3, the message goes out to these seven historical churches in Asia Minor. It's a message to these churches, but for all Christians and all churches at all places and all times. And we could sum up the message that Jesus has to these seven churches and for us as something like this. So if Jesus were here, he'd be saying something like, I have nothing bad to say about some of you. You're doing well. Keep it up. Keep up the good fight. Hang in there. If you do, if you endure, you'll inherit eternal life. For all of you, I know that it's really hard to be a Christian. I know that the world is pressing in, uh, tempting you to compromise and give in. So keep it up. I'm here to help. Keep witnessing for me. If you endure, you'll inherit eternal life. For others of you, there are some things you need to correct. Yes, you're doing some things good, but not everything. So remember your first love. I'm I'm calling you to come back to that, to repent, come back to me. And for a couple of you, I actually have nothing good to say about you. You've compromised. And so I'm warning you that if you don't repent, I'll remove your place as a church. So I look at Revelation as being organized in seven sections. Uh, Chapters one through three are the first section. Then chapters 4 through 7 are the second. So in chapters 4 through 7, the scene shifts to this heavenly courtroom in heaven. And here, God is calmly seated on the throne ruling. He's unfazed. He's unhindered by the events that are happening on earth. He's, He's not disturbed. He's not bothered by them at all. Worship of Him is taking place just as it should. And our worship here on earth should be patterned then after the worship we see in heaven. So maybe you're here today and need the reminder that God is still in control. The chaotic events of the world around us, or maybe even your life, haven't rattled God at all. He's still seated on the throne and ruling with power. 
And as we will see today, Jesus is worthy to be worshiped for what he has accomplished. And he has the power to carry out God's redemptive plan. Let's look at chapter 5 now to see this. So if you have your Bibles and you're able to stand, please do so as we begin reading in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each offering a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth." Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord, just as we sung, remind us that only you are worthy. I'm thankful for what we see here in Revelation 5 today, that you are worthy, Lord Jesus. I pray today we come to you, as we come to you, we can be reminded of this fact, that we have much to celebrate and much to worship, your worthiness, Lord. So let us see you clearly in this text, Lord Jesus. I pray for everyone today who maybe is struggling with the events of life or the challenges around them or just the pressures of compromise that we could see your worthiness and understand what that means for us. It's in your name I pray, amen. So how many of you like good news? Good, at least there's some people here. Haven't, haven't met too many people that all they want is bad news. If that's you, probably better just to sit in a different section or something. So I believe we all like good news. What would that look like for you? I mean, if you think about life and, and everything you hear, it does seem like there can be a shortage of good news today. You turn on the news or, uh, you know, maybe you, you get different reports. It, it seems like good news is in short supply. So what would good news look like for you? Would it look like a better health report, like a good health report? Would it look like uh, a good picture of the stocks rising? Would it look like a restored relationship with a family member or friend? Would it look like the right candidate winning the election? 
Well, what if I told you today that I could give you the best news ever in just three words? First, you'd probably think that's impossible. It always takes him a lot more than three words to say anything, but that's a different discussion. The best news ever in just three words. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And our text today in Revelation 5 shows that very clearly, that Jesus is worthy. Now, on the surface, that may not necessarily sound like very exciting news. Uh, You may be thinking, that's old hat. I I knew that stuff. I knew that Jesus is worthy. What difference does that make in my life? So remember the audience that John is addressing here, these Christians in Asia Minor, they were facing all kinds of pressure to compromise, uh, all kinds of pressure to give in. They were facing losing their status or their jobs, or even in some cases their lives because of their commitment to Christ. And so they, they were faced with the question of whose voice matters the most, Jesus or Caesar? Is what Jesus said about them enough so that they would be willing to give up their lives and live for him, or would they compromise and live for the approval of the world? I think all of us to some degree also wrestle with this question, whose voice matters the most? Whose standards do we use to see if we measure up? So I believe that we don't take these three words, Jesus is worthy, as that great of news that changes our lives for two reasons, one of either despair or two of pride. Despair in that we recognize that that we aren't enough. But we don't see any hope, so we quit trying. We stop reading our Bibles or serving or have a hard time staying motivated spiritually. We mistakenly think that because we can't do this Christian walk good enough, we just might as well give up. There's little point in trying. So I'm sure there's at least one person here today, maybe just one, who's struggling a little bit with worthiness. As you look at your life and all the ways that you don't measure up to someone else's standards, you're perhaps floundering in discouragement. I'm not as good of a mom as she is. I'm not as good of a teacher as he or she is. I just can't, I'm just not as gifted as that person is. I don't see how God could have loved me for what I've done. And the more you continue to look at yourself, the worse it gets. But the other response is pride. It doesn't matter to us as much that Jesus is worthy because we feel pretty good about ourselves. We start trusting in an imparted righteousness rather than an imputed righteousness. Say what? Imparted? Imputed? What are you talking about? Let me just give you an example to show you what I'm talking about. So you're probably wondering why this this is here, aren't you? Imagine this to be a present, and I wrapped it with a little bow myself, so just as a side note, if you have any Christmas wrapping and you need a bow, you know who to go to. But imagine this present represents Christ's righteousness. Imparted righteousness would take this righteousness and and in some senses sign over the ownership of it to ourselves. So we can acknowledge that, yes, it was God who, who gave me this righteousness, but now it's mine. And so what do we do with it? So with imparted righteousness, it becomes part of us. And so we begin to stand on it. It becomes part of us. It's, it's my righteousness in some way. And that's very dangerous. So imparted righteousness now, since it belongs to me, is something that I can get credit for. Yes, I credit God for giving it to me, but actually now it's my righteousness. 
So if any molecule of God's righteousness becomes mine, it's now something that I can trust in. But imputed righteousness is different. I'm no longer trusting in this gift of righteousness to me. I'm trusting in Christ's righteousness for me. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, says it like this. One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always right before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness is in Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed. My temptations fled away, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look from myself to him and could reckon that my character was like a coin the rich man carries in his pockets when his gold is safe at a trunk at home. Oh, I saw my gold is indeed in a trunk at home in Christ my Lord. Now I saw that Christ was my all, my righteousness, my sanctification, my redemption. Does that make sense? Trusting in an imputed righteousness rather than an imparted, or trusting in, yeah, that imputed righteousness rather than an imparted righteousness. But what, what might be surprising to some of you who struggle with this unworthiness is, I'm not actually going to correct you by telling you, oh no, that's not true. No, you're really worthy. Like, just believe you're worthy of his righteousness. Like the prodigal, we are not worthy to be called his son or daughter. But where our text is going is somewhere even better than that today. Although we are not worthy of his love, his salvation, and his care, he still pours these things upon us anyway. We don't have to constantly attempt to be worthy enough for him. We never could be. And this leads us to the good news, the main point of this text that I hope will become clear as we move through it. And the main point is this, because Jesus is worthy, you can rest securely in his ability to see you through the challenges of your Christian life and praise him for accomplishing your full salvation because Jesus is worthy. Sound like good news? I think it is. So where I want to go with this is giving you the proper motivation for the way we live our lives and how we worship God. Rather than, than being motivated by guilt or duty, you will be motivated by Christ's worthiness for you. So our passage here in chapter 5, if you have your Bibles again, opens with this transition. Chapter 4, the Father was being exalted and worshipped on the throne. Chapter 5 now transitions to a question, to a question, who is worthy? Who is worthy? So chapters 4 and 5 are structurally identical to Daniel chapter 7. And in these chapters here, we're seeing how these Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled. And it begins with the question of who is worthy. So first we notice a scroll, a book. It's written on it and it's sealed with seven seals. I believe that this book is best understood as God's covenant with humanity. It contains this plan of redemption and the judgment from beginning to the end. This plan has already been set in place, but has yet to be completed. And once the seals are open, readers can understand the purpose of history and the purpose of their suffering. They can be comforted in knowing that God, knowing in what God has in store for them. 
So the angel, the question asks, is what is worthy or who is worthy? So whoever opens this book must be worthy or, or qualified not only to open the book, but also to carry out these seven seals here. And a search is made. A search is conducted in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea to see if anyone, anyone out there, any creature, any person, anyone is worthy to open this and to break these seals here. And when the news comes back to John that no one is worthy, he is heartbroken. Now, you may be wondering, uh, why is John so bent out of shape about this? I mean, what's the big deal about no one being worthy enough? I mean, can't we do something else? Is there not like a plan B if we can't find anybody? Like, uh, you know, have another search team go out or whatever the case is? But it's because John understands the significance of this question and why I say it's the most important question of the Bible. If no one is qualified to open the, open the book and break all the seals, then all of human history falls apart at this point. None of God's promises will come true. There is no hope for you in your suffering. There will be no punishment of evil. There is nothing for you to look forward to except hell. You have absolutely no hope of salvation or anything. Now, do you see how important this question is then? Do you see why John is so broken over the silence? Because he knows that all is lost if no one is worthy. Now, you know, you probably know of people in society that we would deem worthy of things. Maybe it's an actor, an actress, a musician, uh, an athlete, a politician, but none of these people would be worthy to open the scroll here. None of these people are worthy or able to carry out God's redemptive plan. And the storyline of the Bible is always bringing us back to this point. A worthy one was needed who could fulfill God's purposes for humanity, who could perfectly reflect God and be his representative on earth, one who would perfectly keep the law. But time and time again, everyone fails at that task. Adam fails. Then we have Noah, who fails. We have Moses, who fails. We're learning about Joshua, who fails. Even David, a man after God's own heart, fails. And so the question keeps emerging, who can? Who can succeed? And now we see the answer in our passage today that one did. It's hard to say that even John, if, if not for a split second questioned in his mind, even Jesus? Was even Jesus not worthy? But in the midst of John's apparent hopelessness, a message arrives. One has been found who is worthy to open the book and carry out the, scroll, the scrolls. He has the authority and power to carry out the fullness of God's redemptive plan. He's identified here as the lion of the tribe of Judah, there in verse five right there, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. So he is Jesus. Jesus is not only presented as the one who is worthy, but reasons are given as to why he is worthy and then why he should be worshiped. But let's take a look at the first one now, answering the question, why is Jesus worthy? So Jesus is worthy because he has conquered. 
Jesus is worthy because he has conquered. We see this in verses 5 through 7. So in verse 5, Jesus is introduced as a lion. If if all we had were the Gospels, it could be easy to conclude that Jesus is nothing more than a sacrificial lamb. But here we have Jesus introduced as the lion, fulfilling the prophecy of uh, Genesis 49.9, which promises there will be a lion from the tribe of Judah. He fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 11.1, which speaks of the root of David who will conquer. As lion, Jesus demonstrates his worthiness by conquering or overcoming. So in order for Jesus to be worthy, he had to conquer all of the enemies of God and God's people. He had to demonstrate his power above all things, all earthly things and all heavenly things. If we go back to the cross, we see this displayed there as Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. But his victory does not end with the cross. The resurrection of Jesus likewise displays Christ's victory over sin and death. And as the book of Revelation unfolds, we continue to see the victory of Jesus over his foes all the way through until all of his enemies are permanently banished to the lake of fire. Now, not only does Jesus conquer as lion, which we would expect, he also conquers as lamb. This is a title you're probably very familiar with, a title used over 20 times in Revelation. But in verse 6, Jesus also, uh, John also sees Jesus standing as the lamb who has been slain. And herein lies the irony of the passage. As lamb, Jesus demonstrates that God will overcome, not by a powerful army, not by political uh, means, but by the suffering and death of Jesus. Jesus is approaching the throne here. He's preparing to be enthroned and to take his rightful place as king over the world, but he's conquered by his sacrificial death and atonement for our sins. So this background of lamb comes from both the Passover lamb and from Isaiah 53. But notice here that this lamb is not just presented as lamb, it's presented as something else. Do you see that there in the text? Lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now that phrase, as though it has been slain, is somewhat misleading. You see, Jesus does not just give the appearance of looking like a slain lamb. He is the slain lamb, and he will exist forever as the slain lamb. As the slaughtered lamb, Jesus will remind us forever of his sacrifice on our behalf and that our salvation will never be lost. How? Because he continues always to exist and to remain the slain lamb on our behalf. So as you gaze at Jesus throughout all of eternity, you will forever be reminded that Jesus was slain on your behalf and your salvation will never be lost. The slaughtered lamb is not cowering in defeat, but he's standing in victory. He's described as having seven horns and seven eyes. Seven is a number used uh, very frequently throughout Revelation, sometimes literally, but typically signifying completeness or fullness. In the Old Testament, horns represent power, as seen back in a place, say, like Deuteronomy 33, 17, and uh, even Daniel 7 to 8. Here, the seven horns represent the fullness of the power of Christ. Jesus has all power. He has the power to conquer the enemies of God. He has the power to conquer death and sin. 
He has the power to conquer that sin and that particular struggle in your life that you're wrestling with. Now, this conquering of Jesus is not like a ball game where your favorite team barely squeaks out the victory at the last second. It's not like that at all. This is a blowout. It's not even close. His seven eyes are identified as the seven spirits of God. That ties us back to Zechariah chapters 3 and 4. In Zechariah uh, 3 and 4, these eyes are connected with the removal of sin from the land and with the omniscience, meaning all-knowing of the, of the spirit. So these seven spirits, it's not like God is made up of seven spirits or there's seven different spirits going out. It's just pulling, pointing us back to one spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's, it's representing him. So in other words, what we see is the lamb who is empowered by God's spirit to carry out the plan. So the picture that we have then in in verse 6 is one of a slain lamb who has conquered while defeating his enemies. And again, the irony throughout all of this chapter is that the death of Christ is also the means to his victory, the means by which Christ conquers. So Jesus conquers by his death and, as verse 6 shows, also by his resurrection. Now, I know that you won't see the word resurrection there, but think about it. If Jesus were not resurrected, would he really be standing there as the lamb who was slain in victory? Well, no, of course not. He wouldn't be there. So his resurrection uh, is also this display of his victory. So the worthiness that Jesus displays of his conquering, again, is in a very surprising manner. It was not as clear in the Old Testament how the Messiah would conquer. It was not clear that he would conquer by his death. But looking back... John shows us how Christ's victory could only have happened by his sacrificial death and victory at the cross. So why is Jesus worthy? He's worthy because he has conquered death and he's conquered all who will persecute God's people. In the face of suffering and persecution, Jesus overcame by remaining faithful to the Father and not responding sinfully. Jesus overcame by paying the perfect price so that his people could have their sins forgiven and cleansed and be made part of a new kingdom. What this encouragement means for us is that by Christ's worthiness, that means our overcoming and victory as well. We can overcome the tests of our faith, the challenges that we face, the flaming arrows that Satan shoots, and the pressing culture on us to compromise, not by our own strength, but by the strength of Jesus, who has done what we could not do on our own. Maybe you're here today and you don't see how you're possibly going to be able to make it. Maybe you're thinking, I just can't even see six inches ahead of me. If one more thing hits me, I'm done. I believe that what you need to know is that because of the lion and the lamb and how they've overcome, you can as well. Jesus is worthy. He will not let Satan and sin have the ultimate triumph over you. One day he will ultimately destroy those things and you will face them no more. But until then, he will give you all the grace you need to continue to press on. So Jesus is worthy because he has conquered, but wait, there's more. Verse 9, Jesus is worthy because he has ransomed people by his blood. He has ransomed people by his blood. So in verse 9, we have this new song being sung. We see that Jesus is worthy because of the ransom of all kinds of people. First, Jesus is worthy because he was slain, but Jesus' victory did not come lightly. 
His worthiness to open the book and carry out the plan of redemption did not come apart from his death, and not simply a death, but a very violent death. He was slain. So Jesus is worthy because he died in a very God-glorifying way that satisfied the wrath of God and ended the hostility between God and us. He did this by shedding his blood. The next time you're struggling with whose voice matters the most in your life, remember what Jesus did on your behalf. He shed his blood. Jesus is worthy because his death accomplished something. Notice in verse 9 the result of this. He ransomed people for God. So in other words, Christ purchased people who would belong to God. We were in such a sorry state, as Ephesians 2 reminds us, dead, demonic, disobedient, destined for destruction. We could not rescue ourselves, but Christ gives his own life so that we could be set free from our bondage to slavery, to the slavery of sin. So Jesus is worthy, not because he rescues the best kind of people, but because he redeems people without distinction. He ransoms people, notice, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You see, God loves every kind of people. The good news of Christ's worthiness is not just for Caucasian Americans. Jesus' worthiness is just as much for Africans, for Indians, for Chinese, for Russians, for North Koreans, for Hispanics, as it is for us. After all, Jesus loves ethnic diversity. It's very common for well-meaning people to say something like, God is colorblind, or we're all the same shade of of, of the same color, things like that. I I understand what they're trying to say, but I think those things are very unhelpful and, in fact, untrue. God does see color. But just imagine giving Michelangelo or Picasso a brush with only one color on it and asking them to paint a masterpiece. Couldn't do it very well. God is the master craftsman. His goal is not to have his bride look exactly the same, but to have her made up from all ethnicities and races. As we will see in a bit, God makes a kingdom and priests from every tribe, language, and tongue. He doesn't make one kingdom white and another kingdom another color and so on. So therefore, there is no place in God's kingdom for racism. Racism is satanic and anti-gospel. You cannot worship God and treat other people with contempt and look down on them at the same time. Now, biblically, racism is more than a skin color. It's an otherness problem. Anytime we treat people different or look down on someone because they're other than us, we are guilty of racism. Maybe they have a different skin color than us. Maybe they act different than us. Maybe they look different than us. Maybe they talk different than us. Maybe they smell different than us. Maybe they have different preferences than we do. But guess what? Whatever it is, they're just as much in part of God's kingdom as we are. May we never, may we never lose the wonder of our salvation, that Jesus has the power to free us from the bondage that we were in so that we could have freedom in him, that he did this by the cost of his own life, And that he did this by bringing us into one family made up of people from every tribe, language, and nation. And then he does something with us. What does he do? He makes his people a kingdom and priests. Notice that in verse 10. Jesus is worthy because he makes his people a kingdom and priests. So in verse 10, we're told this, that Jesus is worthy because he makes his people a kingdom and priests and they will reign on earth. 
What does that mean? Well, in Daniel 7, we learn that a kingdom will be given to this messianic figure, this messianic son of man, who will then give it to the saints. So God's people will have authority. They will reign. John sees Daniel 7 now being fulfilled. Now, what's challenging about verse 10 in particular is what we call the already but not yet tension of the New Testament. Already, the saints have been given a kingdom and a reign, but there's a not yet aspect that is still coming. When God's enemies are permanently banished from the kingdom, along with sin and death, this new kingdom, when it fully arrives, will be perfect. We talked in the beginning that bad news always seems to pervade our lives. It seems as though sin and evil are constantly winning. It seems that things will never get better. But Jesus demonstrates His worthiness by ushering in a new kingdom. In this new kingdom, Jesus will establish perfect order. The saints will rule in a perfect way. Did you know that one day you will rule the angels? When the kingdom is fully consummated, we will carry out God's mission in perfect relationship with each other. No more arguing, no more trouble with how power and authority are used, no more selfishness. We will perfectly love God and each other. There will never be any more bad news. I believe that one strategy Satan likes to try and use is to convince us that we are defeated right now. When we buy into that and walk around with our heads down, oh, I'm just so defeated. There's, there's just no good news. We're, we're, we're missing out. We're letting our sin speak louder than reality. We, we already are a kingdom and reign. Again, it's not fully arrived, but it is already here. This means that we can live with an attitude of victory and confidence, not confidence in ourselves. We did nothing to win or secure this kingdom, but in Christ's worth for doing this. Not only do we have a reigning role in God's kingdom, but we also have a priestly role. So just as Israel in the Old Testament was a nation of priests, now we see this being expanded to all believers. Just as God chose Israel from the nations to be that priestly kingdom, now He has chosen believers from all nations, tribes, languages, and tongues to be a kingdom of priests. Holiness is always required for people to have access to God, to be near to God. So as a kingdom of priests, we, we don't offer animal sacrifices. What we do offer is spiritual sacrifices of our lives along with praise and worship. The Levites, as you're learning in the Old Testament, had a very special place uh, serving as priests. But this role was very qualified. Only males between certain ages could be a priest, and they had to have no blemishes. But now we see the priesthood expanded to all believers. All of us have the privilege of having access to God. We aren't limited by any kind of barriers because we're Gentiles. No, we all have that equal access. We don't need a pope or another person to gain access. Jesus is the only access we need. So Jesus is worthy because only He could establish a kingdom that's different than any other kingdom we know. His kingdom is everlasting. His kingdom did not come from a military campaign or conquest. His kingdom will not be challenged by any other rival. His kingdom is not identified with one nation or political body. His kingdom is a reign and a rule over all creation. 
His kingdom is where he will always be obeyed. His kingdom consists of redeemed citizens whom he saved by his blood and will be transformed to be worthy citizens. So how are you living today? Perhaps some of you are still living as citizens of another kingdom. You've forgotten the kingdom that you belong to. You're living as though the values and priorities of this life matter more than the values and priorities of the heavenly kingdom. You're living as though all the bad news you hear has defeated the kingdom of your king. You're living as though serving the king as a priest really isn't that big of a deal. In fact, it's a little boring. But what I want you to see is that the worthiness of Jesus can motivate you to rejoice in the kingdom of God. Worship, prayer, Bible reading, serving, all of those things can be done in a new light. You don't have to be discouraged when something doesn't go your way, when you're disrespected, or when success happens to another person. Why? Because you are and will be reigning with Christ as a priest in His kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but there's no other place I'd rather be. Therefore, Jesus is worthy to be worshipped for accomplishing our full salvation. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped for accomplishing our full salvation. So we see this in verses 8 through 10 and in verse 14. So the response to the worthiness of Jesus is what? Worship. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped for accomplishing our full salvation. Back in verse 9, as, if you remember there, that new song was sung praising Him for that. Praise to Jesus for the redemption He has accomplished. So Jesus is worthy, and His worthiness demands a response of praise. Now, even in society, we certainly acknowledge this to some degree. When a person does something that we deem worthy, we what to them? We praise them. But in an even far greater way, Jesus should be praised for His power in accomplishing the full salvation of His people. In verse 11, if you look back at that, you can see the vast number of saints and angels uh, surrounding the throne to praise Him with a loud voice. At first, it started off with the 24 elders, then it was expanded to thousands upon thousands, and then uh, in verse 13, we see that it includes all creation in heaven and under the earth, and on earth, and in the sea, joining to praise in. This expression of praise is given in verse 12, that the Lamb is worthy to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. The Lamb rightfully deserves the fullness of all of these things. In verse 13, we see the Father worshiped along with the Lamb. Back in chapter 4, it was the worship of the Father that was on display. Now here in chapter 5, the worship of the Son is included in this as well. So we see the deity of Jesus all over chapter 5. You hear people questioning that from time to time. Is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really equal with God? Do, do we worship Jesus like we worship the Father? And the answer to that is yes. The only, only worship is rightfully given to God, and we see the Son receiving it just as the Father is. We see this fourfold expression of praise here, blessing and honor and glory and might that's sung by every creature without ceasing for the sovereign work of the Father and the Son. So let me ask you this, what is it about Jesus that makes Him worthy of your adoration and praise? What is it about Jesus that makes Him irresistibly attractive to you? 
And why is Jesus alone worthy of your wholehearted allegiance and love? There's some questions to wrestle with this week. But in the Lion and the Lamb, we find such wondrous truths that lead us to worship and marvel at His worth. And, and these truths exist simultaneously and fully together, both the Lion and the Lamb. Uh, in other words, it's the Lion who conquers, but He's also the Lamb who lays down His life for His people. We have the lion who establishes his unstoppable kingdom, but we also have the lamb who walks in humility and meekness. The same lion who calms the storms is the lamb who comforts lepers. The same lion who is enthroned above the heavens, above all, is also the lamb who is born in a stable, not a palace. The same lion who destroys his enemies is the lamb who loves sinners. The same lion who deserves all glory and praise is the Lamb who did not insist on being served. The same Lion who created the heavens is the Lamb who became dirty from the dust on earth. The Lion who needs nothing is the Lamb who gave it all. It's Jesus who is simultaneously and perfectly both the Lion and the Lamb. So our text today has shouted out how worthy Jesus is. And this is the best news that we could have as unworthy people. Because Jesus is worthy, you can rest securely in His ability to see you through everything you face in life and the fullness of your salvation and praise Him for accomplishing that. Some of you here today perhaps need that reminder that even when the events of this life, your, your life perhaps, seem to be spiraling out of control, this actually isn't the case. The lion is sovereignly ruling all things, calm without any panic, and He's bringing those things to its appointed end. So come rest in His powerful arms that hold you so gently. Others of you perhaps need that encouragement to stop looking to other people for approval and instead look at the Lamb. His righteousness will forever be enough for you. His approval of you never fluctuates based off your performance. You are now part of His kingdom and a priest. But I believe that all of us could use the motivation to continue to press on without compromising our faith, even as we face opposition. The lion has already won the victory, and so we too can stand strong in his strength. Yes, it is hard. There are temptations every day for all of us to look away from the lamb to something else. But let's not do it. Let's rejoice in his accomplishment of our salvation and what it cost him to do that. And then again, perhaps there's one person in here today who needs the warning that rejecting the lamb will lead to the fury of the lion. You will experience his judgments if you resist him. You will not win by opposing him. So come, come to the feet of the lamb and worship. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our, our own selves can barely even wrestle with this passage. How do we present Jesus Christ as worthy? And I'm thankful by your spirit that it's not on us because you are worthy. So I'm praying, Lord, that your spirit will bring these truths to all of our hearts. Show us, Lord, open our eyes to see the worthiness of Jesus Christ. So amidst the challenges and troubles and trials that all of us face, amidst these pressures to compromise and be like the world, I pray that we can look to the worthiness of Jesus, the lion and the lamb who went before us, 
and who is worthy in our place. I pray that by His grace, we can endure and persevere. So Lord, I pray that today, what each person needed, whether it was the message of the lion or the lamb or both, that we can come away from this text seeing your worthiness, Lord Jesus, and that it will motivate us to worship you and to do so joyfully in your kingdom as priests. And it's to this we pray. Amen.